Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. This episode is from the Rethinking My Life series, and it is called Rethinking My Persistent Temptations. All right. Hey, Adventure. It's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. Um, if you're here on Thursday night, then I'm here with you. If you're here on Sunday morning, I'm not here with you. I'm getting ready to set in at the Mississippi uh, headwaters to float my way home. Um, so we're going to continue on in our series. Anyhow, I got a couple more of these for you. But today we're going to talk about our thinking, but we're going to talk about rethinking how we think about um temptations because we've all got these temptations that we just i don't know they're just persistent they're pernicious we have them over and over again and last week we talked about sin and rethinking sin now let's talk about that temptation that brings us into that sin because i've got those temptations and you've got those temptations and all the people sitting around us have those temptations i mean we all have them but we can't defeat temptation if we don't understand temptation. All right. So now follow with me here in your notes. I'm going to have you up. How am I not hopping forward? Here we go. All right. It's from second Corinthians. So Paul, we kind of jumping into a run on sentence. Paul's talking about defeating Satan. Uh, he says, so to keep Satan from getting the advantage over us. All right. Now watch for we are not ignorant of. In other words, we do know what Satan's, I like this, wiles, I guess that's wily coyote, but wiles and intentions. I think this is also translated schemes. But we know what Satan's scheme is. We already understand what it is. So how do we deal with these persistent temptations? How do we change our thinking about what they are and how to respond to them? That's what we're going to dive into today. All right, so the first thing I need to get, I need to understand how temptation works. So as crazy as this sounds, one of the things I like most about the devil, actually the only thing I like about the devil, is that he's consistent. He just doesn't change things up much. He is uh, pretty much the same all the time. He's very predictable. He has been using the same problems or for us, the same temptations for us, since the Garden of Eden. And let's follow in my, te- or follow in the texture with me. This is why we don't have to be ignorant of what he does. So Genesis chapter three. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Serpent. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. Listen, Satan has literally been using the same temptation that he used on Adam and Eve in the garden on you every day of your life. And here's how it works. Step one, he creates a wrong desire. That's the first thing. 
Adam and Eve had access to every tree in the garden. They could eat from every tree, every bush in the garden that they wanted to eat from. So what Satan did was he pointed them and he focused them on the one that they couldn't have. He got them to lust after that one tree. And I find it interesting that what he did was he used a natural God-given desire, which is hunger, to get them to rebel against God. So Satan likes to take natural, legitimate desires or needs and pervert them. So he takes hunger and makes it gluttony. He takes contentment and turns it into envy. He takes attraction and he turns it into lust. He turns our desire for justice into a desire for revenge. Um, so he takes something that God made this good and he perverts it. Second thing, he creates doubt about the truth. Did you catch what he said? He said, did God really say, so there's your first part, that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what he said. The reason he said it is because if you do eat from this other tree, then you'll be like God and he doesn't want that. He does not want you to be like him. So he takes it and he, he starts twisting that desire. Step three, he gets me to step toward the sin. He says, oh, come on, listen, it's just not that big of a deal. I mean, if it was that big, would, why would anybody do it if it was really a problem? So everybody's doing it. Just come on and do it. And then you start telling yourself, you know, I kind of might. I might kind of like doing that. I think I might do that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then step four, I disobey. And his, his plan is complete. All right, number two, I need to understand my vulnerabilities. We all have vulnerabilities. There's all of, each one of us has a spot where we are in more danger, maybe more danger than somebody else in the same setting, but it's dangerous for us. And I need to acknowledge where that danger is. I need to acknowledge where I'm really vulnerable. Now watch this from Ephesians. Do not give the devil a what? An opportunity. Don't open the door for him. I love some of the uh, older versions, I think, actually say uh, foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let him get a toehold in your life where he can start climbing you. Don't let him do that. Don't give him a place where he can leverage you. We want to avoid that. So that begs the question, what is the spot in your life where you are the most vulnerable? What's the spot where we're the most vulnerable? You know, I don't even have to know you and I can tell you where it is. It's in your emotions. It's in your emotions where you're the most vulnerable. It's anytime you have a negative emotion. It's anytime you feel anger or fear or contempt or disgust or sadness or guilt or shame. Because Satan takes, remember, he takes things that are normal, things that are designed by God, and then perverts them and distorts them. And Satan loves to attack us via our natural emotions. Now, I want to chase a rabbit with you for just a second. So let's kind of hold your pencil there for a second. There is a difference between an emotion and a feeling. And I feel like it's, get that, I feel like it's important for us to understand that. 
So psychologists differentiate it like this. This is from uh, a, an article in Psychology Today. Emotions are regarded as lower level responses. They first occur in the subcortical areas of the brain, such as the amygdala and the ventral medial prefrontal cortices. These areas are responsible for producing biochemical reactions that have a direct impact on your physical state. So what, what they're saying there is your emotions trigger your fight, flight, or freeze responses. So what they're saying is emotions are almost universal throughout everybody, no matter when you're born, no matter what country you're born to, no matter what your religion is, emotions are almost always universal. Feelings, on the other hand, are much more subjective. Feelings are how we choose to respond to the emotions that come from those chemical responses that our system starts kicking out when it realizes something's up. Now, let me continue reading from that article. Where emotions can have a more generalized experience across all humans, feelings are more subjective and are influenced by our personal experiences and interpretations of our world based on those experiences. Feelings occur in the neocortical regions of the brain and are the next step in how we respond to our emotions as an individual. Because they are so subjective, they can't be measured the way that emotions can. So anytime you feel a negative emotion, you make a choice about how you're going to respond to it, uh, how you're going to choose to feel about that emotion, how you're going to act out based on that emotion. That's why this is one I see frequently. So let's say you have two families from the same neighborhood, same income, both attend the same church, both have got the same family histories, same number of kids, same everything. And so let's say a grandfather dies. So when the grandfather dies, that one family, one of those two families will pull together and will become more compassionate, more loving, more concerned about each other, where the other family with all the same situations will suddenly fly apart and scream at each other and make demands of each other. The same emotion, different choices in how to respond, different choices in the behavior, different choices in how they're going to feel about what's happened. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So the heart controls the transition from emotion, which is a chemical response based on your awareness of the situation. It controls the transition from the emotion to the feeling, to the thought process for how I'm going to respond. What is my behavior going to be to this? That's why scripture says over and over again, Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. In other words, don't lean on your own feelings. Don't operate just from your feelings. Seek his will, God's will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. So let, let me paraphrase that for you. Believe in the Lord's promises with all your mind and don't act out on your feelings. When your heart seeks God's will, 
When the emotions come, your belief in him will direct you in how you should be feeling, what actions you should take, what your response should be. I mean, truth is, well, we can't, we can't escape emotions. We're human beings and they're God given. But we've got to realize that with some emotions, we have different vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities then come in the choices that we make and how we're going to feel about those emotions that we've got. So we're far more vulnerable to temptation when we've got a negative emotion, when we allow certain feelings and choices to dominate our response to those emotions. All right. Number three, I need to understand my own personal pattern in temptation. We each have a somewhat unique pattern. Uh, There are things that tempt me that won't tempt you. There are things that maybe tempt you that won't tempt me. But Satan understands what it is for you. He understands what it is for me. And he's going to come and he's going to try to utilize those patterns in our lives to cause us to stumble. The Bible says when we figure out, we understand these patterns and we learn how to respond to those patterns appropriately, the Bible calls that wisdom. I mean, if we understand the pattern, we can take steps to avoid. Look at Proverbs 14, 8. The wise man looks ahead. The fool attempts to fool himself because the first person to believe your lie is who? Yeah, it's always you. The fool attempts to fool himself and won't face the facts. So we've got to face the facts about our own temptation. A fool won't do that. A fool will make excuses about that. So we got to get the facts. Now, how do we get the facts about our temptation? We need to ask ourselves some questions. Um, I need to ask myself, so when am I most tempted? What day of the week am I most tempted? Am I tempted in the morning? Am I tempted in the afternoon? Am I tempted at night? What's the pattern there? Um, where am I tempted? Am I tempted at work? Am I tempted in the break room? Am I tempted, uh, in my yard? Am I tempted at the bar? I mean, am I, am I tempted in my kitchen? Where is it that I'm most tempted? So when am I most tempted and where am I most tempted? And then I need to ask myself, who's with me when I'm tempted? Is there some person who's always with me other than just me who's with me when I'm tempted? Or am I more tempted when I'm alone, when I'm by myself? So I need to ask myself those questions because I need to understand my own personal pattern. All right, let's go to the next one. Number four. I need to admit what I believe is the benefit of giving in. So the reality is every time I give into a temptation, it's because I think I'm going to enjoy it. I think it's going to benefit me somehow. Now, it may not benefit me in the long run, but I'm pretty sure it's going to benefit me in the short run. Because honestly, we only do things that reward us. We only do things that we enjoy. So what is causing me to choose to give in to this particular temptation? Does it give me some kind of relief? Does it give me some kind of temporary excitement? Does it give me a thrill? Does it give me some kind of false confidence? See, the problem with that is any benefit from temptation is always short-lived. 
You always have to go back for more. It's never satisfying. It's only temporary. It's like a temporary appeasement. So in the story of Moses, Moses, uh, Pharaoh has ordered, the king of Egypt has ordered that all the babies, all the male boys are going to be put to death. And Moses' mom does not comply and she puts him in a basket, puts him out floating on the uh, Nile River and puts him in some reeds there so that God can care for him. And she's sending Moses' big sister out to take care of him every once in a while. And um, what happens is the king's daughter finds the baby and she wanted a baby so here it is so she thinks the Nile has answered her prayer and so she takes Moses who should have been put to death and raises him inside the king's house so he grows up inside the palaces in Egypt and eventually Moses starts realizing I don't look like my family in fact I don't look at all like my I don't look like any Egyptian I know, I look more like the people who are our slaves. And so there was a moment where Moses had to make a choice. Was he going to stay with the Egyptians or was he going to go with his people? And I, I love this explanation in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at that. He chose to suffer with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for how long? For a little while. That's how sin works. It's always temporary. So you got to ask yourself, why is it I keep falling for this over and over again? Why do I feel a need to repeat it? Because if it was satisfying, I wouldn't need to repeat it. All right, number five. I need to acknowledge how I feel right before I attempt this. So this is so, 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 so important. Think about how you feel because you know when the temptation's coming. There is something there. In fact, I love this. There is always always, always a precursor. There's never a time in a temptation where there is not a precursor. There's always, remember we talked about, I've got a pattern and you've got a pattern. We all have this pattern thing that goes on. We know what it is. There is always a precursor. So what I need to ask is when I feel the temptation, what are my emotions right now? And how am I responding to them? What's going on inside of me right now? Am I frustrated? Am I fearful? Am I lonely? Am I angry? Am I bored? Uh, am I, am I feeling like I've lost control? What is happening right now that's causing me to consider this? Now, when you understand what the precursor is, scripture gives us a process for dealing with that. All right. Uh, let's read Proverbs chapter four, verse 25. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your sight be focused in front of you. Carefully walk a straight path with all your ways uh, and all your ways will be secure. Do not lean to the right or to the left. Walk away from evil. So it's the same steps. Watch this. So step one, look where I need to be. What does God want me to be doing? Where does God want me to be? And you just look at that and you just ignore everything else and head toward where God wants you to be. Number two, you stay on the godly path. Don't go investigating the temptation. <laughs> stay on the godly path. Stay on the straight line. That's why we call it the straight and narrow, right? Don't drift off of my path. It's always amazing to me how many times we get drift because 
we just get thinking about something else. He says, listen, keep your focus. Don't start thinking about other things. When you're tempted, you need to stay away from that thing that's tempting you. Don't drift off your path. And then just keep on walking. I mean, stay on the course God has set. Put it behind you. Put it in the rearview mirror. And once you do, it will calm down. It will calm down. In other words, what the Apostle Paul says, you need to have a plan. And then when the plan, you need to have the plan in advance. And then when you need the plan, you need to use the plan. And you need to stay with the plan. So you need to be thinking through. And when the plan feels like it's going to waver, pray, pray. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15. Call on me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you. Look at this next thing, Hebrews 4. I love this. Watch this. This high priest of ours, that's Jesus. This is important you get this. Understands our weaknesses. How does Jesus understand our weaknesses? For he faced all the the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. And when we need help and we pray to him, God, I'm giving into the temptation. You got to help me with this temptation. He'll provide the grace. He'll provide the grace to survive it. All right. Next thing. Number six. I must choose to refocus my attention on something else. It's a little counterintuitive because our eyes tend to stare at whatever scares us at the time or whatever getting our attention, we stare at it. Now, what we're going to see is don't stare at what you shouldn't do. That's like trying to go on a diet and then going and staring at Whitey's ice cream for your diet. It's not going to turn out well, right? So don't focus on what you shouldn't do. Focus on what you should be doing. Focus on what you should be doing. This is really, this is some of the best advice you'll ever get on this. The solution isn't in avoiding evil, but rather in pursuing righteousness. So the key to my not giving into temptation isn't to try to avoid the temptation. It's to just decide my life is going to pursue something else. So if I feel the urge to drink, the solution isn't to avoid drinking. The solution is to focus all my energy on something that doesn't include drinking. If I feel depressed, um, the solution isn't to avoid things that depress me, but to pursue things that give me hope. If, if I feel the urge to look at porn, the solution isn't to focus all my energy on not looking at porn, but to rather invest myself in something that rewards me differently, something that blesses me and blesses others. And again, we keep coming back to this. James lays this out. James chapter one in your notes. Temptation comes from where? My own desires, which entice me and drag me away. If I don't have a plan, if I'm not putting things in place to prevent from being dragged away, it's going to drag me away. I love this simple solution Paul gives. I'm going to have you underline here. Don't let evil conquer you, but... Underline this whole section right here. Conquer evil by doing good. This is what we call the principle of replacement. 
I'm going to replace my evil stuff with my good stuff. I'm going to replace evil behavior by doing things that are good, by doing things that are righteous, by doing things that are better. So Paul writes the church at Philippi. He is giving them the principle of replacement. Philippians chapter 4. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Okay, here comes the replacement. Fix your thoughts on, or he's saying focus on, what is true, what is honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about, focus your thoughts on things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. That's the principle of replacement. You focus on the things that you need, not the things that you wish. You focus on what's best, not on just trying to avoid what's worst. All right, number seven. This is really, really a big deal. I need outside support to defeat temptation. I do. You know what? God wired us to need each other. I need you and you need me. And there are about 60 um, commands I found in the New Testament that I cannot fulfill unless I'm around other people and that other people can't fulfill unless they're around me. And so we have to be linked together. So, all right, so I, I need outside support to defeat temptation. So this outside support, what's the deal with it? All right, first thing, I need a small group. Man, if you're not in a small group of some kind, you need to get in a small group. We have ministry teams. We have Bible studies. We have the men's breakfast, the women's breakfast. We have all kinds of things. We're built on being together in small groups. Even if they're not formal Bible studies, we still encourage small groups and fellowship and being together. You see, if you're not traveling in a pack, you're like a, you're like a puppy in the jungle where the big things are going to come eat you. You need to have a pack to travel with. Otherwise, Satan can just drop in and can just pick you out at his convenience. You cannot do this alone. You need a small group. I need an accountability. I need an accountability partner. I need a prayer partner. You realize Jesus had prayer partners. He actually had a small group. Of course, he had the group of the 12. Um, but inside that group, he also had a smaller group that he did everything with, Peter, James, and John. They were often his advisors. So you need that small group, but you need an accountability partner. You need prayer people with you too. Um, Galatians talks about sharing one another's burdens. James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may pray for each other and you may be healed. So I need an accountability partner that I can confess my sins to and I need a prayer partner who will be praying for me and that I can be praying for as well because I know we don't like this. God says it's not just enough that you confess your sins to him. You know, you know why God says it's not enough that you just confess your sins to him? Because he doesn't have any skin on him. <laughs> and anybody can sit and confess to somebody they can't see. But he says you're not serious about your confession until you're confessing to someone else 
another human that you can share with, that you can be open and honest with, that you can be known by. And he says, you need somebody in your life that can call you out, point it out, say, stop that, or say, man, I'm praying for you. I got your back. You need other human beings for that. And see, I need a church family. I need a church family. You know, it's always kind of funny to me. I know a lot of people who they want Christ, but they don't want his church. Um, so back in 97, before we made the decision to move to Davenport, um, I had a heart-to-heart conversation with God while I'm going on a walking track out there. And I remember what I told God, and I can quote this. I remember saying to God, God, I want you to understand, I love you, but man, I hate your people. They are killing me. Why can't you do something about it? I want to be yours. I want to work with you. I want to work for you. But I am so sick and tired of your people. So then my my Bible study later that day, God had planned for me to find this verse so that I could chew on those words that I had said to him. Ephesians chapter 5. For husbands... This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, this is why the church is called the bride of Christ. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her clean to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And you know what hit me that day? Can I just tell you, as a husband... If you don't like my bride, you and I are not going to be friends. (laughs) That's the reality of it. You can't say you love me and want to be my friend and not love love the uh, blonde or red or whatever color it is right now. Yeah. See, I need you and you need me. And... We need the church. And yeah, the church is imperfect, but the church is imperfect because you and I are both in it. That's the only reason it's imperfect. So God has put us imperfect people here to cheer each other on and to encourage people and to try to grow together. I put some other Bible verses in there for you and you can, you can read those on your own. But the bottom line is, is that we cannot long exists without each other. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is coming. Listen, whatever temptation you face, there are people in this church who have already whooped it. Whatever temptation you're trying to defeat, there are people in this church who have dealt with that temptation and have defeated it and have been freed from it. We have some who have struggled through everything and they have won. We like to think that our struggle is worse than anybody else's. Can I just tell you it's not? I mean, you got a, you got a nickel. There are people here who've got a dime and have got a dollar. And it's not because it's a competition. It's because your problems, your struggles are just not that unique. They're not that special. I'm going to close with this from uh, 1 Corinthians 10. 
If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. So he says, if you think you're doing pretty good spiritually, be really careful about that because you can get arrogant and then you end up having a total collapse. The temptations in your life are no different. You might want to circle that no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God already has a plan. He's asking you to make sure you have a plan for temptation. And when you have a plan for temptation, if you start to struggle with it, he wants you to call on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to stop and rethink temptation. And Father, we're also very grateful that you understand temptation, that Jesus was tempted, tested, tried just like we were, and yet he didn't let his emotions drive him into negative feelings that caused him to sin. Father, may we have your perspective. May we realize when it comes to temptation, we can beat these things, but we've got to want to. And we've got to get help to do it. Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.